Hello, welcome to the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. 21cc is short for 21st century construction, and since we're just a quarter of the way through the century, we take a future-oriented look at the challenges the industry faces, such as quality and safety, sustainability, and skills. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. In this episode, Justin Jargonbuster Stanton casts a baleful eye over the willy-nilly use or misuse of the term digital twins. Some in the digital twin and BIM community are keen to push for a dogmatic, exacting definition, while others prefer a more flexible meaning. Find out if what you think a digital twin is matches what some feel is the right definition. Also in this episode, CIOB People editor Nadine Badu speaks to Katie Kelleher, a pioneering female crane operator, about what it was like getting her career off the ground, as it were. And there's like these buildings, massive, massive buildings on either side. And I think for the longest of time, I was just worried that I was going to stick the jib of the crane into Tesco's. And that was going to be a really big problem. And in his ongoing exploration of the future of robotics in construction, Justin talks to the project team testing a little wheeled robot that looks like one of those autonomous vacuum cleaners, except that it prints construction drawings to scale right on the floor slab of a new building. The actual fineness of the lines is so precise that you can build with confidence. And I think you don't always have that on construction projects. First, though, we head to Saudi Arabia. By now, you've probably heard about the line, part of the kingdom's NEOM gigaproject. According to concept designs, it's conceived as two super-tall skyscrapers, higher than any building in Europe or Africa. They're only 200 metres apart, and they stretch in a straight line for 170 kilometres across the desert. Yep, you heard that right. If it gets built... Nine million people are meant to live in the structures and in the long, deep canyon they'll create. As an urban concept, it's paradigm-busting, and in keeping with the kingdom's grand plan to create a whole new non-oil economy from scratch. But will it work as a nice place to live? My colleague David Rogers, associate editor of Global Construction Review, spoke with Raphael Prieto-Curiel, a mathematician who has studied the geometry of thousands of cities. As you'll hear, when Raphael learned of the plan, he was, to say the least, unsettled. Saudi Arabia's NEOM development is one of the most ambitious construction programs being undertaken anywhere in the world. Over the course of the next seven years, a series of futuristic projects are going to be built in Tabak province in the northwest of the country. In the past, this region was the gateway to the Levant for pilgrims and traders. Now it's going to be the scene for ten futuristic developments, of which four have so far been announced. Next year, the island resort of Sindala will be welcoming its first holidaymakers, and residents will begin moving into the floating port city of Oxagon. Two years later, work is due to be completed on the Trojina ski resort. All of these developments are on a huge scale. Trojina covers almost 60 square kilometres, and Oxagon is being billed as the world's largest floating structure. However, it's the line that has attracted most attention. If this city lives up to its renderings, it will take the form of two 170-kilometre-long rectangles of mirrored glass, 200 metres apart and 500 metres high. According to Neon, it will redefine the concept of urban civilization, 
and reveal what cities of the future will look like. But it's fair to say that not everyone agrees with this assessment. One is Rafael Prieto Curiel, a mathematician and research fellow at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna. Over the past few years, he's been looking at how an urban area's physical shape affects the way it functions. To this end, he has examined no fewer than 6,000 African cities. The general conclusion he's come to is that, all things being equal, the most efficient shape for a metropolis is very familiar. That is, it's a circle that gets increasingly dense towards the centre. The reason why this is so is down to simple geometry. A circle is that shape that maximises the area contained within its circumference. It's the shape that brings everything together, and so it's the shape that minimises the time that has to be spent getting from one place to another. As a corollary of this, the worst possible shape that a city can be is the one that maximises its boundary relative to the area contained. That is to say, a line. Here's how Raphael explains the problem. I was looking one day at my Instagram and going through different stories, I see the plan for this new city called the line. I'm like, no, no, this is, as you say, David, mm. the worst shape of a city. How can it be that we have the worst shape of a city being designed in 2022? Because that was last year. I was like, no, no, this cannot be true. And I thought it was just a render to be displayed on Instagram. But no, it is actually being constructed. It's actually taking place because we were expecting cities to be circular as every other city in the world is. And then you see this outlier that wants to be the line. Now, the designers of the line are aware that the question of transportation has to be addressed. The solution is to install a magnetically levitating subway with trains that are able to move from one end of the line to the other in 20 minutes, while above ground, the city's millions will be encouraged to get around on bicycles. Raphael, however, is sceptical that this is going to work. The renderings do not say how many stations the line will have, so Raphael and his colleagues at the Complexity Hub constructed a mathematical simulation, rather like the old computer game SimCity. What they discovered was enlightening. We started with three train stations, and then four, five, six, and because it's on a computer, we went up to 500 train stations. So we explored all the possibilities for the line. And in this computer game, we actually added another train line that was faster and that skipped some stations and a third train line that went only a few from the extreme to the other, trying to get the best, the fastest possible city. The results are that the city is actually very slow. It doesn't matter what, it's going to be as slow as if you walk, actually. The problem of getting from A to B to C is not confined to the horizontal axis. Remember that the line is going to be made up of continuous super-tall skyscrapers. How are its 9 million inhabitants going to deal with the problem of moving vertically? Raphael points out that the built environment is going to be much taller than the Eiffel Tower. So in order to go to another destination, inhabitants are going to have to walk to a lift, wait for a lift, travel in a lift, and walk to another lift. The result is that even if these lifts never break down, and even if they travel at 3 metres a second, Lifts are going to dominate the everyday lives of the line's inhabitants. So you're going to be going up and down and up and down in lifts and in public transport every single day of your life? The striking physical form of the city will bring another problem, 
since its parallel sides will form a kind of canyon that will cut out direct sunlight, except for one or two hours a day, or one or two days a year. The result is that the city will be dark, so dark that those at ground level will have difficulty distinguishing night from day. And that is not the only problem. The city Tabuk is going to reach this week 43 degrees centigrade. That is going to be one of the hottest places on earth to be. So this new line, that is the city that we are constructing from scratch, is going to be extremely dark to live, extremely hot to sustain uh, human life. Therefore, it's going to rely extremely on electricity and on uh, energy to make it light and to make it cold. Not even cold, but sustainable. Let's say distinguish 30 degrees, right? How? How did we come up with this plan that in 2023? What makes the idea of the line so compelling is that we know that its physical form is the opposite of the organic splodge of most normal cities, but that any difficulties that arise will be overcome by astonishing technology. Raphael's analysis says the technology will not be able to do this. In fact, the sooner it comes to a stop, the better. We start constructing it, and then eventually we realize that this plan is not working. And how far advanced is the project? And then when we stop it, it's going to be even more unfortunate. Because if we stop it in 2023, there are just very minor excavation sites. But if we stop it in 2030, maybe there's already 1 million people living there. And that's when it's going to be a tragedy because you will have 1 million people trapped in a very disturbing situation. So that's going to be the tragedy. I hope that this project is soon going to collapse because of its own ambition. Despite his criticisms, there are aspects of the line that Raphael likes. One is the way that it has entirely done away with the car and focused its attention on public transport. Another is the way that it has got people talking about urban design and the possibility of reimagining how cities might work. But at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia has better ways of accommodating its rapidly growing population. There are cities, very big cities in Saudi Arabia with very ambitious population growth and they are already there. Make them grow more circularly, more compact, densify a bit the center of Riyadh and that's a better development for the country than constructing this super ambitious city with very severe environmental problems. Thank you, David and Raphael. It'll be fascinating to see if the line gets built, and if it does, whether it works as an urban concept or is more the triumph of form over function. Now, do you know what a digital twin is? Do you really? Justin Stanton is here to try and clear up any confusion in this month's Jargon Buster. Welcome to 21cc's Jargon Buster. I'm Justin Stanton, editor of BIM Plus, and each month 21cc tackles an acronym or bit of industry slang related to construction and its modernisation. This month, it's digital twins. The phrase is now bandied around with gay abandon. Some in the digital twin and BIM community are keen to push for a dogmatic, exacting definition, while others prefer a more flexible meaning. With input from Henry Fenby Taylor, presenter of the Digital Twin Fan Club and something of a Digital Twin Sven Gali, here's our attempt to present both sides of the story. 
The UK government's official definition is this. A digital twin is a cyber-physical system that links a computational representation of a physical asset, entity or process with a two-way flow of right-time data from installed sensors on a physical twin. This powerful link between the physical and the digital can help monitor, optimise and even remotely control the physical asset across its life cycle. A few years ago, the Centre for Digital Built Britain developed the so-called Gemini principles, namely purpose, trust and function, to help set agreed and ethical foundations for digital twins. The Gemini principles definition of a digital twin doubles down on the need for there to be a connection between the physical and the digital. It says... A digital twin is a digital representation of a physical asset process or system. It is distinguished from any other digital model by its dynamic connection to the physical twin. A digital twin unlocks value by supporting improved decision making. Now, the more active members of the digital twin community on social media have a simple mantra. A simple digital model is not a digital twin. However, at the design stage of a new building or structure, it is very easily argued that the building information model as a simulation of what the physical asset will be when completed and in operation is in fact a digital twin. Using the BSI's Flex 260 standard for digital twins as an inspiration, Henry told me a digital twin is a digital representation of an observable element with a means to enable a relationship between the two elements. When added to controlling and human components to fulfil a function, they form a cyber-physical system. Confused yet? Let me reinforce the notion expressed in those definitions I've quoted so far, that you might have a digital twin of a part or aspect of the operation of an asset, not just the whole asset. And at national level, there are ongoing discussions about cross-industry connected digital twins. So, long story short, if you're taking your first steps in digital twins, whether you think you want one or someone is trying to sell you one, focus on the Gemini principles of purpose, trust and function. Start with the end in mind. If there's a bit of industry jargon or an acronym that you'd like 21cc to tackle, Drop us a line at 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thank you, Justin. Since the CIOB launched its Diversity and Inclusion Charter in 2021, more than 100 companies have signed up to it, committing themselves to five basic actions designed to foster a more diverse and inclusive work environment. To help us understand what it's like for women starting out in the industry, my colleague Nadine sat down with Katie Kelleher. Katie used to work in construction trades recruitment, but when she saw the wages tradespeople could command, she decided to give it a go herself, enrolling in the National Construction College at Bircham Newton to get her crane operating qualifications. As Nadine found out, it wasn't all plain sailing. Traditionally, working as a crane operator has been viewed as a job for men. However, change is definitely afoot. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with some incredible women crane operators who talked to me about what attracted them to the industry, as well as the challenges and gender stereotypes they faced on site. 
One of the women I spoke to was Katie Kelleher. Katie has become a prominent voice in the industry on big issues such as skills and diversity in construction. She joined the industry in 2015 and worked as a crane operator on high-profile projects including Crossrail and Tideway. She recently left the cranes behind for a new role as Technical and Development Officer at the Construction Plant Hire Association. But despite the career change, she is still a huge champion of working as a crane operator. Here's a snippet of my chat with Katie. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. So to begin with, it would be great to hear a bit more about why you actually chose a career in construction and what attracted you to the industry. Honestly, when I when I chose a career in construction, it was it was a complete accident. I didn't particularly choose it. Um, I usually say the I didn't choose the construction life. The construction life chose me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was I was a my kind of my backstory is I studied English literature uh, at university. Mm. Then I worked in sales for a number of years because I. By the time I was studying, I was also working in a shop called Phones for You, which is long gone by now. And eventually sales kind of led me to working in recruitment. And I worked on a trade and labour section. So I put out painters, plasterers, plumbers, bricklayers. And I noticed that people in construction were earning significantly more money than I was. And I kind of came to the conclusion, could I work in construction? Okay, I didn't have the tickets. I didn't have any qualifications. But I thought, what if somebody was willing to train me? Would there be a space? Would there be something I could do? So if you look back to when you first started out as a crane operator, what was that experience like for you? I mean, there there was challenges along the way and there was things that I weren't sure about. And, you know, I often talk about my first day on site and it it was quite horrendous. It It was looking back at it, it was quite horrendous and I kind of, I walked in and I was I was too early, but I didn't know because that's the time I was told to get there for. And now I said, oh, I'm here for the induction. This guy sent me upstairs and I walked into this room full of men and they all just stopped and stared at me. And I kind of thought, well, I must be in the right place because he's told me to come up here. So I walked to the back of the room and they all kind of followed me with their eyes. And I stood at the back wall and I slid down the back wall. And just waited. I kind of went into a bit of a fetal position and they all turned around. They all carried on what they were doing. And I kind of quickly realised that I I actually probably wasn't in the right room as nobody was talking to me. And um, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Shouldn't I just go back to recruitment? Why am I putting myself in this really uncomfortable situation? I guess that was the first challenge. And I always always think if I was younger or if that was my first job, I would have never gone back on the second day and that would have been it. Yeah. Um, I think the fact I had so many jobs and so many experiences and I really wanted this to work pushed me on. But if that was my first experience at work, I probably wouldn't have gone back on the second day. Obviously, you, you've touched on some of the the kind of the, the stereotypes of, you know, what it is to be a woman in construction and the, even just that feeling of kind of going out onto site the first day and being stared at because you are a, the only woman on site. Has it been the the kind of the typical oh she she's a girl she won't be able to do this yeah it's um it's an interesting one there and there are plenty of stereotypes and there's stereotypes from people who work in the industry and stereotypes from people who don't work in the industry and I mean when you go on site for a long time 
I had to sit in the crane just waving at people. It was really, really strange. <laughs> I, probably, I don't think I do it now, but at the time, I had like this little walkway in front of me on one of the sites and all the guys walking past used to wave at me and smile at me and I felt like I had to wave and smile back, a bit like a sideshow. We had quite important people visiting and I'd noticed when they were coming to site, it'd be kind of like, oh, get Kate. I remember George Osborne coming down. I had to be in the crane instead of the, the backshift driver or the other guy, you know, because I guess because it's a bit different. I do get it. When people, when lorries are turning up, they'd always ask the guys, what's that girl like in the crane? What's she like? Is she any good? It'd always be like that. You know, I've never worked in an industry where people find it appropriate to comment on how you look all the time. <laughs> you know, like I remember one day I went in and maybe I looked a bit more messy than the other day. And it's kind of, oh, you put your finger in an electric socket. <laughs> Oh, they'll comment like I remember like one guy commenting on my breasts like it was really weird I mean I worked in an office and I wore dresses and this that and the other and nobody ever commented on how I looked. How long did it take to learn the ropes and feel confident as a crane operator? Uh, the, the confidence took a lot longer than learning the ropes. I went to college in Bertram Newton. It was kind of an intense learning environment. You do things, you learn it for a couple of weeks, you do the test, you do the written test, the speaking test, and you get it all done and, and you run through each one like that. Um, so that that all happens quite quickly. And then my, my company at the time, um, Select, after that, we went to our yards. So you're not immediately after training you don't want to be thrown out on society in a crane just like you go from a field in Norfolk to working in the centre of London with buildings all around you it can be a bit daunting and then even when you go onto site I guess the, the confidence thing does take it the longest of time and I mean the first site I was on was uh, Tottenham Court Road uh, which was a crossrail job so a really nice job but it was tight it was really tight and there's like these buildings massive massive buildings on either side and I think for the longest of time I was just worried that I was going to stick the jib of the crane into Tesco's and that was going to be a really big problem I think everyone on site expected me to stick it through the building as well and and it was I felt for the longest of times I just felt really tense really tense like everyone on site was looking at me and just waiting for me to mess up and and it was just like this constant tension and headache for like months like of over concentrating um so that the confidence took a lot longer and I think that that comes with being comfortable with the team and comfortable with your surroundings and comfortable with the site and what was the most technically challenging part of the role Tower cranes I found a lot more challenging than crawler cranes. Firstly, I, I freaked out when I got halfway up the ladder. So that wasn't a good start on my first day. Um, you're not really used to going up ladders that tall. And the ladder moved when I got halfway up. <laughs> and it wasn't like a big movement. It just shook a little bit. And I really had a panic. And I just had that fight or flight. And it's like, do I go down or do I go up? Because I feel like I'm going to pass out right now. I'm having a real panic. And I thought, no, just go up. And I got up to the top and I just laid on the floor. <laughs> I had a moment and just laid on the back gym and just spent a little bit of time breathing <laughs> before I <laughs> pulled myself together. Um, after that, I was fine. After that first go up, you kind of get used to how things are. Uh, technically, tower cranes, I, I didn't find them as accurate as crawler cranes. And there's, and there's differences between tower cranes. 
Uh, see, most crawler cranes, they, they kind of operate the same and they, they seem to be quite accurate in where they stop as you're slewing around. They'll they'll kind of stop where you want them to stop, whereas tower cranes all behave really differently. And um, so you'll, you'll want to stop, say, let's talk, let's do it in time. So we'll talk about like quarter past nine. Mm-hmm. You want to stop at quarter past nine or quarter past the hour. And so you think, all right, I'm going to have to stop on the hour. Then the crane's going to slowly move around and then it's going to come to a stop at the quarter past. And then some of them will. And then some of them will stop a lot sooner, five past, ten past. And some of them will stop at 20 past. And this this accuracy thing was just something that I found really strange. And I don't know, tower crane operators must love it. But each tower crane acts really differently. So is there any aspect of operating a crane that a man might have a physical advantage for? I'd say you're on an even keel, you know, maybe if we're talking 50, 60 years ago and cranes were a bit different, levers, heavy things, you know, it might have been a lot different, but they're all very touch sensitive now, especially the especially the crawler cranes. They're very, very easy to manoeuvre. They're not like you don't have to put strain into the into slewing or it's all very, very easy. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and insight today. To read the full feature, Women Making It Big in Cranes, go to ciobpeople.com. For now, back to you, Rod. Thanks, Nadine. I have no head for height, so you won't catch me climbing up a tower crane. Now, when I started reporting on construction more than 20 years ago, an old hand took the time to explain to me how a building site worked, and he made a point to note, in his words, that men still carry heavy loads. You'd think the industry would be ripe to bursting for roboticization, if that's a word, but so far the hype has almost always exceeded actual take-up. However, one recent invention shows signs of breaking through the complex network of barriers keeping innovation at bay. At a hospital project in Derby, contractors have been testing a little robot created by HP that moves around the site floor by itself printing precise construction drawings on the floor so everyone can see exactly what goes where. Justin is here to tell us what that's all about. The greater use of robotics in construction is inevitable. The deployment of robots will help to address, at least in part, many of construction's ills. Safety, quality and rework, productivity. If you attended the UK Construction Week or Digital Construction Week exhibitions at London's Excel in May, it would have been hard to miss the debut of a new construction robot, Sightprint. Developed and marketed by HP, Sightprint does what it says on the tin. It prints digital designs onto site floors. The three-wheeled yellow and grey robot prints lines and complex objects accurately and with consistent repeatability, says HP. It can also print text and thus bring additional data from the digital model to the construction site. It is designed to be autonomous and can avoid obstacles. It comes with a selection of inks for different surfaces, environmental conditions and durability requirements. The positioning and navigation of HP SitePrint on the job site is achieved by linking it to a robotic total station. During its development, the robot was tested on more than 70 projects worldwide. What feedback has HP received from the contractors that have tested it so far? Here's Shafi Juarez, Director at HP Construction Services. 
we have been doing full projects with, with many customers of different either general contractors, surveyors, or, or also trade contractors, drywallers, uh, MEP or m and contractors, etc. Uh, so I would say that the feedback that we've got is, is it's much more productive. So it really enables what we want to enable, which is increase productivity and free up uh, the operators from the annual task. It's very easy to use, which is something that we were that we were seeking because we want to empower the same people that are doing layout today to use this tool and we don't want them to have to go through intensive training and it's straightforward. Maybe not a surprise, but the one that is more different than just meeting the productivity and ease of use goals that we have is that once you enable uh, a robot to connect directly the digital and the physical world, which today required human intervention and required this this um, manual process that's that's time consuming, uh, you can bring much more information from the digital model into the into the physical world. You can put more text. You can put you can add instructions that you would normally not put when you're doing the string line. You can add, for example, it seems uh, not very relevant, but it is the door swings. So normally, when you do manual layout, you don't put the door swings because doing it's, it's extra information and doing an arc in manual layout is very complex. You need to go and find the center and then and then do the like the, and then use a string and, and do the radius, etc. It takes a long time. I think the door swings with Cyprin is, is almost immediate. It's no more complex than adding a simple line. For example, in in there was a project where adding the door swings enabled a contractor to find out that there was a conflict, that door would have never opened because it was crashing with another element and they would have never found that out until until they went into the into the real building phase so to me one of the aside from the increases in productivity and and convenience one of the things that uh, that we have like the most of the that we have that we have been getting is that it opens new possibilities of coordination between the team that's creating the business the the, um, the digital model sorry and the, and the team on site and moreover since the robot is connected this coordination can go even beyond because if the team in the back office creates a revision of the drawing because they have found out that something needs to be changed the team in the field can get that right away without having to go through a process of sending that over and potentially laying out something that's not what they need so the first real-world demonstration of the final production version of Sightprint was staged on the Kingsway Hospital in Derby, being built by Integrated Health Projects, the Vinci Building Sir Robert McAlpine JV. How did IHP get along with the robot? I spoke to the McAlpine Digital Construction Manager, who got the robot onto site. Sassy Stark. So I was calling round, looking for kind of technologies that would add value to the project and, you know, weren't just gimmicky. And the site print seemed to have the potential to be a technology that would be useful and like cut down time and maybe help with costs. And so we decided to go with the site print during that first call with HP. They were like, oh yeah, we've we've started training this company. You might not have heard of them. They're called Greenhatch. Instantly, I had a smile on my face because... I not only know Greenhatch, I've worked for Greenhatch and they're also in our city. So it was almost fate. Yeah, so it was the ideal opportunity. So we're building a mental health unit um, in Derby and we decided to test it by setting out a bit of a ward. So you have like these rooms with en suites and they're kind of set out the same across the whole project. Uh, so we thought we'd do a section of this, kind of a wing of 
the ward and see how that looks. Um, so we decided to do that and it has worked out really well. So what impressed you about site print and did you have any concerns? Um, so we were really impressed with the accuracy and Greenhatch have said that even though I think it says on the website three mil accuracy, they have found using it in the field that it's much more accurate than that, which is it's bang on. Uh, the, the actual fineness of the lines is so precise that you can build with confidence. And I think you don't always have that on construction projects. The ink is still there. So uh, one of the concerns I had was that it's water-based ink and we weren't weather tight yet. Uh, we kind of did it on bare slab, but the ink is still there. And that's with people traipsing across it and building materials being dragged across it. I'm sure they weren't dragged. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but it's durable. What was the reaction like on site? Oh, everyone was excited on site, definitely. The perfect thing happened when we were testing this on site, which was we had a subcontractor in that was going to be doing dry lining. And they, for part of the project, were concerned as to how they would be doing the setting out because it was quite a complex layout with curved walls and stuff like that. They happened to be on site and they were discussing it in the morning, this issue, how they might approach it. And they walked over, we're testing the robot, and they were like, hallelujah, this is what we're going to do. Will IHP or Sir Robert McAlpine be using site print again in the future? Uh, yeah, I think so. I have got so many calls internally about uh, the site print. People are so interested in it. Uh, and much like how uh, when SRM worked with Build Dots, this has had this, a similar kind of buzz around it where people are interested in this new technology and how it will perform. And what next for HP? Site print has floors covered. What about walls and ceilings? Xavi Juarez again. We see more need potentially in ceilings than in walls because of, of installations. Um, normally the way that we've seen also in manual layout uh, to do people take care of ceilings is is, is two ways in, in in europe it's mostly marking the points on the on the floor and then projecting them with laser and this is what we expect this is going to continue happening with cyprin but marking the points on the floor faster in some other geographies sometimes you mark on the top floor and then you and then you drill down uh, it's true that there's a there, there could be an opportunity to mark uh, directly on the ceilings um, i would say it's a need to me, and the question and, uh, is, can we find the technology that can resolve that need in, a, in such an effective way as we are doing for the, for the floors? This is, a, this is a challenge. Today, we are easing the process because we are simplifying the part of marking on the floor, which is probably the one that's taking them the longest. Can we go further in ceilings and give them an extra increase in productivity? It's something that uh, remains to be seen. Finally, Sassy Stark offered this observation on the opportunity robotics presents. So I think it's going to become like, in a way that being able to do BIM has put people on a, an advantage in the industry. I would say it's the same if you can use the robots. Thanks, Sassy and Shavi and Justin. That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. Tune in next time when we find out what it's like to build on the coldest continent on Earth. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. You can contact us by email on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>